I'm Kirsten. I'm Andrew. And this is Most Foul. Kirsten, it's so good to see you. Hi! Happy whatever. (laughs) (laughs) We're in the, like, weird... There's no holidays. It's summer. It's hot. The dog days of summer. I said that to my daughter the other day, and she wanted to know what the dog days were, and I didn't really know for sure. I <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I said it's a Florence oh, and the Machine song. Yeah, it's just you know the end or something. I just I confused her with my blah, 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 blah explanation, and then she thought of something else and got distracted. The dog days are over. <laughs> the dog days are done. I love that song. Whatever happened to her? I love Florence in the Machine. Is she still Uh, doing stuff? She's just having a great life. Yeah. I would so just quit. If I became a superstar (laughs) and made, I don't know, maybe 10 million, 20, definitely under 100, I think I would just stop and just enjoy life. I was reading an article about Cameron Diaz the other day. She was being interviewed for something, and she explained her retirement in such simple terms. Like, everybody seems so confounded by her not making movies anymore. And she was like, you know, when you make movies at a high level, you have to turn over certain parts of your life to other people to manage because it's too much. And I just wanted to take over my life like I wanted to live my life myself and I'm like that makes so much sense so to me she's always fielding this question of like why would you ever leave like making movies and it's like why would you not I don't understand people who those actors who have like hundreds and hundreds of millions and they're still like away from their family eight months out of the year making movies like I don't get that I love doing nothing. (laughs) This is part of why we connect so strongly, because (laughs) our values in this regard are very aligned. But think about, I mean, obviously not nothing. Like, I have creative pursuits, I have endeavors. But, like, if you didn't have to work 9 to 5 or, you know, in some ways lucky to have 9 to 5, like, if you didn't have to work 40 hours a week minimum to, like, be alive in this world. Yeah. Just imagine what it would be like, like sort of like the podcast. Like if we could do this as a full-time job. Oh my God, amazing. Uh, um, it would be incredible. We'd, you'd be getting episodes every week. <laughs> totally. And I love it. That's the thing that's crazy is, you know, all of these quote unquote deep dives, we have to find a new phrase for that. But until we do all these deep dives that we do, like I did that always before. This is just how I enjoy spending my time is going down a rabbit hole about you know, whatever topic. And now I just have found this amazing outlet for something that I really enjoy doing anyway in my free time. Yeah, because it's so interesting. But yeah, just imagine like money never being an option, not even just like money not being a problem, but like you've got everything you want. Yeah. Like you don't have to worry about like, oh, should I budget ever? Yeah. Like you said, 10 million, like these People in pursuit of a billion, it's like, oh, my God, $10 million. That's a lot of money. I could go to any restaurant. And, like, and I'm not talking about those stupid-ass expensive restaurants. I'm talking about, like, a $50 steak. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
And like, I don't know, there was a part of me, I mean, we were just talking about JLo last week, but there's a part of me that I saw the pictures of her Benefer 2.0 vacation on the yacht and it looked so cool. And there was a part of me that was like, wow, I wish I had $30,000 a day to rent a yacht. But then I saw the pictures of her at the end of the vacation, just sitting on the deck and like, what was she doing? She was scrolling on her phone, same as me, like on my ass in my living room. And okay, the scenery is much nicer, but like you could be in Italy and taking in that scenery without the $30,000 a day yacht, you know? So I don't know. There's oh, a, totally. Yeah. There's a part of it that's just excess. Like when I think of myself and who knows, you know, they say power and money corrupt. Mm-hmm. So who knows? But like when I think about the incredible vacations and trips I've gone in my own budget and salary, it's like I could just do what I've already done a little more often and have like, not even that it needs to be nice, but just like a decent hotel room and not worry that, oh, it's going to cost me a thousand dollars as opposed to this $400 room in Amsterdam where I could touch both sides of the wall at once. <laughs> to be I'm fair, you kidding. have long arms. <laughs> but I would, that room was so expensive and I could touch both sides. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it would be like that. It's like, oh, I could stay in a Ramada Inn or I could, or not Ramada, I could stay in a Marriott. Ooh, yes. No, I know. I, I feel the same way. I mean... If, if there would be anything that would compel me to continue working to make loads and loads of money, it would be to help other people and to give that money away. Like I was reading somewhere, which I never remember where I read stuff, but on Facebook somewhere saying that Elon Musk has made, I don't know, I'm just making it up, but like $160 billion since the pandemic started. And with the additional billions that he's made since the pandemic started, he could like solve child hunger and like pay for 60% of college age students to go to community college. Something, I mean, imagine being able to have that be your legacy. Like, oh, no big. I just solved childhood hunger in the United States. Like, wow. So if I would ever have a motivation to like keep making money, it would be so I could give it to the causes that I felt were important. You know he's a shitty tipper, too. Totally. You just know it. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. He's gross. And I, ugh. So we might <laughs> cut this out, but I just want to say it aloud. I cannot stand all this self-made billionaire bullshit that leaves out his fam- family owning Uh, emerald mines in apartheid South Africa. It's like our bullshit business, quote unquote, journalism nonsense, calling Kylie Jenner a self-made billionaire. It's like, these are just lies that we continue to perpetuate. Like all, if you're a billionaire, it's because it's built on blood. Yeah, totally. (laughs) I mean, what's that famous saying by some famous person? Like every fortune at the beginning of every fortune is a crime. Oh, yeah. I, I thought you were going to say, ba-da-ba-ba-pa, I'm loving it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where that came from. Is that something <laughs> I would say? Okay. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. <laughs> hey, they're not paying for this. 
but I will love it if you want to advertise. <laughs> What else? But yeah, no, I also think about like, oh my gosh, giving like a server a thousand dollar tip would just be so cool. I know. Oh my God. And I so would do that stuff. I would buy my high school best friends houses. Like I would, I would be. And then kick them out. (laughs) I would be totally that person and then control their lives and, and force them to satisfy my every whim. But you know. Never mind. That would about be the that. hard thing. It's like to to your friends that all have real jobs. It would be like, okay, so if you can get the two weeks off, I'll just pay for the vacation. Right, right, right. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, I think that's part of what makes moving into another income bracket challenging for people. Like, as much as you might want to hang on to your roots, it's hard. Well, it's so easy. Like if. If you just gave up your avocado toast, <laughs> you too could be a billionaire. <laughs> Speaking of, did you see Brit Brit's like avocado toast post on Instagram the other day? Oh my gosh, yes. And I need you to know that guest of the pod, Liz Bernstein and I sent it to each other. <laughs> And had a full discussion where I was just in my head like, was that you and I? (laughs) (laughs) Well, my girls and I watched it over and we probably watched it like no lie 17 times in a row. It was mesmerizing. Knife work. The little, the little push to the side to flatten and fan. (laughs) I know. Was that her hand? I was confused. (laughs) No way. Yeah. Okay. That was that was the crux of Liz and my discussion was this is not her. <laughs> so am I just an off-brand replacement for Liz B? Because I'm kind of picking up that vibe. <laughs> uh, no, no. <laughs> equal, equal uh, parts. I'm kidding. I love you, Lizzie B, and I'm never jealous of your relationship with my work husband (laughs) (laughs) well and we'll see if you want me to cut this out one of the greatest memories of my life was when you sent me a screenshot (laughs) of Brittany's Instagram post of her boyfriend in a tub (laughs) and your your text to me was just is that a plate of asparagus To this day, I think about it because it was, listener, this this man in the tub and there was just a giant plate of asparagus next to him. And it was such a, like, me transitioning to middle-aged person moment because I was like, holy shit, I accidentally liked this picture of a half-naked guy (laughs) in the tub when all I was trying to do was double tap to zoom to see if that was the asparagus (laughs) if that was asparagus so it was a very like oh my god I've become my mom moment where I double tap to zoom but in Instagram that's a like that was the moment I knew (laughs) I knew we were destined (laughs) I I really I mean obviously I think about it because I'm the one who brought it up but I really do think about it it brings me joy it's such a good memory (laughs) (laughs) that was a special moment for us and I need I still need answers as to why there is a plate of asparagus at the tub. I mean, I just think if you're if you're really wealthy and 
Yeah, you just take baths with, I don't know, grilled asparagus? I imagine that it was chilled grilled asparagus. And that was just, you know, he's just munching on him while he takes a a bath. I mean, I like asparagus. (laughs) (laughs) I've never considered cooking some up to bring to the bath. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, that was wild. But I totally love them together. I hope they get married and... I want her to have more kids with him. I just want her to have the life that she deserves. He is so hot. Oh, my God, yes. And that includes her hot boyfriend. (laughs) And as long as he um, treats her right, then yes, I want the same. Yes, yeah, obviously. But, you know, I I get the feeling that he really does love her for her, you know? I mean, to be the cameraman for all of those Instagram videos. (laughs) (laughs) That's a real level of closeness. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Brittany, we're pulling for you. Such a fan. Love her. Mm -hmm. Completely. All right. So what else? We have some pre-planned banter. Oh, yeah. All of that was off the cuff. I'm sure you can't tell. I'm sure it seemed as though it was really uh, planned and written. (laughs) Well, when it's scripted, we use words like mellifluous and Abernathy. I don't know. I'm just making shit up. But (laughs) when it's not, we use things like... That's so Abernathy of you. (laughs) We use words like, wow. Oh, my God. OMG. No, but I really, I when I read this, I immediately thought of you and I thought of talking about it on here before one of our episodes because I read a recent study that links being a night owl to being more likely to be a psychopath. And you being a night owl and a Slytherin, I thought this would be fertile ground for us to discuss. Yeah, so listener... Um Kirsten reads, study finds night owls are more likely to be psychopaths, immediately comes to the podcast (laughs) to flame me to death, stomp on my neck. In fairness, I immediately thought of my husband, too, who's also a night owl. (laughs) And this is fake news paid for by uh, big melatonin. So my favorite quote from this one particular article about it that I found, and who said this, since I have it in front of me, I should be able to quote my sources this time. Dr. Peter Jonason from the UWS School of Social Sciences and Psychology. I think that's University of West, it's somewhere in Australia, Western Sydney, um, He says, those who scored highly on the dark triad traits are, like many other predators, such as lions and scorpions, creatures of the night. But a bum. I mean, maybe maybe there's something. Maybe there's something. But (laughs) I, I don't know. There's something not right about early morning people. I'm just that early morning bunny, like the wide-eyed, innocent little rabbit hopping around first thing in the morning, you know, just waiting to be. It's not a party until it's midnight. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, apparently, if you like to stay up late, you're more likely to have 
antisocial personality traits such as narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathic tendencies. So there you have it. You heard it here. Yeah, and if you're a morning person, you're more likely to be boring. (laughs) (laughs) I can't entirely argue with that. (laughs) I wouldn't... So I... I would describe myself as... I I mean, I prefer being up at night. There's something I like about it, but, like, I'm also not a person who struggles to wake up. Mm. So, like, I'm sort of in the mix of, like, six hours of sleep is good. So, like, if I go to bed at one and wake up at seven, I'm totally fine. I don't drink coffee. I don't need... More like I'm awake in the morning. Yikes! That's People like you're love like love the morning. Yeah, you're like um, I don't know. Genetically, we need to bottle you up. No hangovers. Only need six hours of sleep. A lot of people would pay good money for those two traits. <laughs> I know Dolly Parton wakes up at three a.m. Wow. And then three to six is part of her creative time. See, that's kind of how I am, although I don't get up at three, but depending on like my level of stress and other factors, I will go through long periods where I'll wake up at four and I get up and the house is quiet and I can think and get things done. Well, having kids, you got to get that alone time and that me time wherever you can. Right. And by the end of the day, I mean, I could do it then, but my brain is just garbage, you know? So I go to bed at like nine and then... I get up early. That's just Yeah, me. but then you just... Oh, I was going to try to make a joke, and then <laughs> I lost it. <laughs> around, my uh-huh. house, around my house, that's called funny because it's not funny. Although that has now evolved to not funny because it's not funny. Mm, I know a lot of people that are not funny because they're not funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else? I don't know. Um, Just living the dream. Yeah, basically. Same, same, same. I mean, when I think about what I've done this week, I've done a lot of work on the podcast because I like doing it. And I'm really excited about today's episode. I, too, am excited. I've I've teased you that I have trivia that I've been like, this doesn't normally happen to me, but there's just a little bit of trivia in my section that I really enjoyed. And it has been killing me not to tell Kirsten about it. (laughs) Yeah, I would say every cycle we do, we we kind of vary it. We're not like super strict about it, but we try to not share our parts with each other until we do the recording just because it kind of makes it better. But this one we've been pretty tight lipped about. Well, to the point where I was having a conversation with my sister and she was talking about something with the school and I was like, oh yeah, I hear you, but let me tell you this trivia I learned. It's so funny. I mean, I feel like this is either going to go one of two ways. It's going to really take off and people are going to be into it and we're going to be doing this for a very long time. Or we're just going to drive everyone in our personal lives absolutely crazy and they're going to hate the mere mention of the podcast. I mean, I suppose both of those things could happen, but I'm in my like imaginary future, it's one or the other. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It could go either way. (laughs) 
All right. Do you want to jump in? We're so excited to start. Yeah, I, I would really like to get into this one. Okay, so our crime today takes us all the way back to the early 19th century and a city that is very dear to my heart, Boston, Massachusetts. Woo! Boston was once nicknamed the hub of the solar system by Oliver Wendell Holmes, and later that was shortened to just the hub, which is still used locally today, which is interesting because I feel like as someone who lived in Boston for 20 years, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with the nickname, but I also feel like outside of this region, most people probably don't. Have you ever heard of that, the hub? No. Yeah, most people don't know it. But I think it just speaks to kind of Boston's self-identity as, as a the little city that could and a city with a bit of a chip on its shoulder about New York. <laughs> but our crime takes us way back to 1827, and on May 26, 1827, one Edgar Perry, age 22, enlisted in the U.S. Army, Battery H of the 1st Artillery. He was a bit of a wayward soul, and with debt collectors on his tail, he was sent to Castle Island in Boston Harbor to serve at Fort Independence for $5 a week. Private Perry really took to military life, and by all accounts, he enjoyed his time at the Scenic Fortress. One thing in particular immediately intrigued the young soldier, a beautiful marble marker that stood near the western battery of the fort, which read, in part, Near this spot, on the 25th of December, 1817, fell Lieutenant Robert F. Massey, aged 21 years. The officers of the U.S. Regiment of Light Artillery erected this monument as a testimony of their respect and friendship for an amiable man and gallant officer. Perry began to ask questions of his fellow soldiers about the monument and the story behind it, and eventually his curiosity was rewarded with a really ghastly story. So 10 years before Perry's time on the island in 1817, Boston was experiencing a time of peace after the War of 1812, and life at Fort Independence, which again was still an island separate from the mainland, life there was monotonous and dull. So the 78 or so men stationed at the fort found various ways to pass the time, and not all of them in keeping with the Puritan values that still prevailed in Massachusetts. Two of those 78 souls were 2nd Lieutenant Gustavus Savage Drain, age 28, and 2nd Lieutenant Robert F. Massey, age 21. So Lieutenant Drain had been stationed at Fort Independence for some time from his home state of Maryland. And even at the lowest rank for commissioned officers, in such a small detachment, Drain was 15th in the chain of command. But he had a reputation for being a bully and a general asshat. Lieutenant Massey was newer to the detachment, having arrived on Castle Island earlier that year from his home state of Virginia, and he had an easy, affable manner that made him a natural leader and really popular with everyone on the island. Well, almost everyone. Massey was the 16th ranking officer in the chain of command. On Christmas Eve 1817, the Castle Hill residents were celebrating and whiling away the blustery winter evening playing cards. And at one point during the festivities, the mood just took a dramatic turn when Lieutenant Drain jumped from his seat, slapped Massey across the face and shouted, you're a cheat and I demand immediate satisfaction. And I guess in the parlance of the time, that meant a duel. 
So the other men in attendance that night were said to have attempted a reconciliation, but Drain just would not relent. So a duel was arranged for the following morning at dawn. At the time, duels were being outlawed across the northern part of the United States, especially since the infamous Burr-Hamilton duel just 13 years before. Duels were viewed less and less as an honorable way to settle a dispute. And incidentally, which I didn't know before, Aaron Burr was charged with murder um, in the case of Alexander Hamilton in both New York and New Jersey after that duel. He was never convicted, but the incident ended his political career. So getting back to our two lieutenants, some sources say the duel between Massey and Drain took place near the Dearborn or North Bastion of the fort. Others say it happened by the Western Battery. Listener, believe me when I say that I went on a deep dive of the subject of fortification design and battlement construction to learn about bastions and batteries and scarps and counterscarps. I'm still not 100% sure if a bastion and a battery are the same thing. I think they are, but if you're interested, check out our sources in the episode notes. Just know that Massey and Drain were probably on the west or city side of the fort, and we'll have pictures of this so you can picture where this was. The weapon chosen for the duel was a sword, and Drain reportedly felled Massey really quickly. The mortally wounded Massey was taken to the officer's barracks and died later that afternoon. The men of the garrison were outraged that a good man like Massey had been murdered by a shit stain like Drain, and nothing would likely be done to get justice for Massey, because although they were still illegal at that time in the army, command typically turned a blind eye to duels, and the men knew this. So Massey's friends quickly erected the marble marker I mentioned earlier on the spot where the duel took place and where Massey had been buried but ill will continued to build against Drain. Then, as if in answer to their prayers, Drain was gone. No one knew where he had gone, only that he was no longer there as a constant reminder of the murder of their friend. His disappearance was recorded as a desertion um, of duty, and life on the fort just kind of moved on. Until 1827, and the curious questions of Private Perry, who we talked about earlier, Fellow soldiers told Perry that the story did not actually end there. What truly became of Lieutenant Drain was known to a select few who had been on the island 10 years earlier. Some of those men were part of the group who respected and admired Lieutenant Massey and just couldn't let his murder go unanswered. They shared with Perry that several months after the duel, a group of men gathered with Lieutenant Drain in mock camaraderie and began an evening of drinking and games. And as the evening wore on, the men plied Drain with more and more alcohol from their pooled rations. Eventually, they lured him to a remote area in the lowest level of the fort with the promise of yet more drink. Once there, the men chained the impaired lieutenant to the wall and slowly, stone by stone, entombed him in a tiny chamber, never to be seen or heard from again. Was it true? Well, that's not totally clear. What we know for sure is that Lieutenant Drain did kill Lieutenant Massey in a duel on Christmas Day in 1817. We know he was buried on the western side of the fort and a lovely marble marker was erected. We also know for sure that Lieutenant Drain was not court-martialed or sectioned from the Army. We know this because he continued to serve in the Army and he died in 1846 at the rank of captain in command of Fort Mifflin in Philadelphia, where he's buried today. 
Why he wasn't court-martialed or charged with murder is lost to time, but we know he continued to be a shitbag who punched down. It was noted that he served in the Seminole Wars in Florida, and he was commended for, quote, gallant and distinguished conduct in the affair of the Withlacoochee and on several subsequent occasions in the war against the Florida Indians, end quote. For this air quote service, a fort was named in his honor just south of what is now Gainesville on Seminole land. Fortunately, nothing of that fort survives today. But before we totally discount the tale told to a very young and maybe gullible Perry, there may be some kernel of truth in it yet. It is widely reported that during a 1905 renovation of the fort, a skeleton was found chained to the wall of a secret chamber deep in the dungeon of the fortress. That skeleton was wearing a tattered regimental uniform from the early 1800s. So, I mean, this sounds like it lines right up. Listener, you have no idea how badly I wanted this to be true. I searched and scoured every mention of the phrase skeleton found in a Massachusetts newspaper from 1901 to 1911. Of the 307 skeletons mentioned during that time, none were from Castle Island. I did learn, though, that in 1903, five skeletons were found in a cave in the Ozarks, where I'm from, and at the time, they were thought to be the oldest human remains known in North America. I'll follow that one up off pod, but my point here is that finding skeletal remains was not super common, and it made news far and wide when it did did happen. If a skeleton was found in the fort, I think it would have been big news, but I can't find anything. So make of that what what you will. I did find out, though, that as of 2015, it was still legal in Massachusetts to duel to the death as long as you do it on Sunday in the presence of the governor. That is nuts. (laughs) And lastly, the poor bones of Lieutenant Massey now rest peacefully, but that was not always the case. In 1892, the monument and remains were moved from Castle Island across the harbor to Governor's Island, which is now completely overtaken by Logan Airport. And in 1908, his remains were again relocated to nearby Deer Island, now entirely a wastewater treatment facility. Hashtag visit Boston. (laughs) Finally, in 1939, Second Lieutenant Massey's earthly remains were permanently settled in a cemetery at Fort Devens in Ayer, Massachusetts, where they rest today along with the marble memorial Perry so admired. Wow. Yeah. It's a wild one, but so interesting. And just a plug for the website and and Instagram because we I got so many pictures of forts and battlements and monuments and maps of the harbor and I made overlays so you could see how the harbor has changed. Castle Island used to be an island. Now it's connected to the mainland. Um, Mm -hmm. So I just, yeah, I really dorked out on this one big time. So listener, we've been purposefully vague in this episode title because you might be asking yourself, well, how's this duel? How's this crime impacted culture? And so... You know, the details of the story that Kirsten just told might remind you of something. And to get there, you have to think back maybe to middle school or high school English class. (laughs) And that's because the mythology of this case at least partially inspired Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado. Mm. Now, how did this inspire him? Well, if you remember 
Edgar Perry from Kirsten's Story, that was actually Edgar Allan Poe, and he enlisted in the army using a fake name and a fake age to get around the age requirement and to escape his creditors. So he was there only 10 years after the duel and was obsessed with the story. And so even though we now know that that story isn't 100% accurate, that's the story that Poe heard. And that's the story that inspired this cask of Amontillado, which has mega impacted culture. Mm. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. So I wanted to take a moment and set the scene of my own high school experience with Poe. <laughs> and to do that, I have to talk about the best teacher ever, Janice Laut, my English teacher. Just absolutely incredible as a young little closeted gay boy in the South. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's the stereotypes of really having a deep connection with your English teacher. And uh, it was real. <laughs> um, she, if I ever win an award of some kind where I'm giving a speech, she will be part of who I think. Mm. She waited for a day when it was storming outside. And then just out of nowhere, like we did not know this was happening. And she was like, it's time for Poe. And then she had <laughs> us like tape folders over the window into the classroom. She locked the door. Uh, we pushed all the desks to the side, sat in a circle. She lit candles and scattered dead rose petals. Wow. And then she sat on the floor in the circle with us and we read and discussed Poe. It was like a movie. It was, it to this day, it's like one of my most formative memories from high school. Oh my gosh, she was the best. Am I going to mess up your flow if I ask for a pause here to do a slow clap for the teachers like this? <laughs> Thank you. The weirdest slow clap in uh, <laughs> podcast history. <laughs> so, yeah, Janice Lau, you are the MVP. I can't thank you enough. I mean, in a lot of ways, my whole life. I can credit so much back to the growth and the understanding from that class. Oh my gosh, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> anyway, uh, I did, before we jump into it, you know, I think there's a bit of an elephant in the room, depending on your knowledge of Poe, and that's just that it's truly fucked up that he married his 13-year-old first cousin when he was 27. Noted. Uh, Kirsten and I do not support that. <laughs> And I know it's from a very long time ago, and it's not quite as disgusting as Jerry Lee Lewis doing it in the 19-whatevers, but still, I, it it bears saying yeah, that's we're, gross. We're anti-child marriage. <laughs> so that said, The Cask of Amontillado. So it was first published in the November 1846 issue of Goody's Ladies Book which was, at the time, the most popular periodical in America. Um, coincidentally, that happens to be seven months after Captain Drain died in Philadelphia. Mm. But that's just coincidentally. I'm sure Poe didn't know that. Um, but the trivia I've so longed to tell and might be the biggest disappointment. <laughs> 
So I was trying to figure out what the hell Goody's Ladies book was. Yes. So, and then I learned that it, like, mega impacted American life in a lot of ways. And the key ways I wanted to focus on was talking about holidays. Okay. So the magazine's editor, Sarah Hale, she used her position and influence to advocate for the establishment of a national Thanksgiving holiday. So in this magazine, she presented a series of appealing articles featuring descriptions of food, recipes, festivities that are now considered to be typical. So, like, she introduced recipes for roasted turkey, savory stuffing, pumpkin pies. Oh, my God. And in 1858, she petitioned President Buchanan to declare Thanksgiving a national holiday. So she basically scripted all of our Thanksgiving memories. (laughs) Yeah, which I was like, I mean, like, why would you learn that in school? But I was like... This seems like something you would know, but it doesn't stop there. So the magazine had a a woodcut of the British royal family with their decorated Christmas tree at Windsor Castle. And so they altered that engraving to turn it into an American scene. So like they removed the tiara, they removed the crown. So they like had that woodcut and they shifted it to make it American And so then they published the scene in their 1850 Christmas edition. And it was the first widely circulated picture of a decorated evergreen Christmas tree in America. Art historian Carol Ann Marling called it the first influential American Christmas tree. Wow. And folk culture historian Alfred Shoemaker summed that up. And he said... In all of America, there was no more important medium in spreading the Christmas tree in the decade 1850 to 60 than Goody's Lady's book. Wow. So the image was reprinted in 1860, and then by the 1870s, it became custom in America to put up a Christmas tree. So interesting. Now, we're going to have to dig into this some other time because my my like passed down folklore wisdom about Christmas trees is that they started in Boston with the German immigrants. And I've been repeating that. So I I need to know more about this. This is so fascinating. Well, and that could be a regional truth, but in terms of spreading it across the country and again, things I never, never would have ever even thought about. I was like, Oh my God, this is so crazy because it was like, Okay, well, he was published in Goody's Lady's book. What is that? Yeah, they had weird names for periodicals at that time. I remember when we were doing Charles Dickens mentioned, I don't know, one of our episodes. And it was like Mm -hmm. in a journal around that time, a publication that also had a very strange name like that. Yeah. And so aside from being a fun tangent, I wanted to include it to emphasize that the Cask of Amontillado being published in this magazine periodical was a big deal. Mm -hmm. So at its peak, which was pre-Civil War, it had a readership of 150,000. Wow. Which, again, how do you even print 150,000 of them? Like, you have a printing press. They have to be distributed. People are sending you money for this subscription. So, like, it really was interesting putting myself in this 1800s mindset Mm -hmm. and how, I mean, just so hugely influential on our holiday season every year to this day. So yeah, I just thought it was fascinating. It's amazing. Well, and it just, I mean, I think the one thing it really shows is like 
it's a good example of the stickiness of that of that journal and how the information spread, right? Mm-hmm. If like the spread of Christmas and Thanksgiving is an indication of how, you know, it's like watching a virus, I guess is a bad example, <laughs> but like, you know, watching it spread throughout the culture and that's exactly it. Like, but for the cask of Amontillado and its influence. Mm-hmm. So for folks who don't know this story, it's set in an unnamed Italian city at carnival time um, in an unspecified year. And it's about a man taking fatal revenge on a former friend who he believes has insulted him. So like a lot of Poe's stories, the narrative revolves around a person being buried alive, or in this case, walled in. And there's one line from it that always stuck with me. (laughs) And it was... I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile was at the thought of his immolation. <laughs> I mean, fucked up. <laughs> and sort of another trait of Poe is that he often wrote the stories from the murderer's perspective. Yeah. Damn, that line, to teenage me, <laughs> I was like, holy cow, this is so intense. And what, like... Probably, like, I didn't know the understanding and the psychological aspects of it yet, but it's, like, that fascination of murderers, even in fiction form. Yeah. But, damn, yeah, that line, still to this day, I think about, like, oh, I was smiling, but he didn't know that I was smiling at what I was doing. It It's just so, like, ugh. Creepy. Chills. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But enough about me for our (laughs) armchair psychologist (laughs) trying to figure out who I am. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so the Cask of Amontillado is one of the most famous and enduring works of Gothic horror. Aside from it being a standard part of English curriculum across the country, it's continued to influence the culture in some pretty interesting ways. So back in the 1950s, 1951, the story was adapted to a comic series called Crime Suspense Stories. <laughs> Could use a little work on the name. <laughs> um, but this was under the title Blood Red Wine. And to spice it up, they changed the ending to show that um, the murderer, Montresor, Fortunato was shooting at him and hit a huge barrel of wine. So, like, Fortunato died in the wall, but in the comic, Montresor drowns in wine. Oh, my gosh. Uh, But I thought it was, like, particularly interesting as someone who doesn't have a strong understanding of the history of comics that this comic would have happened in 1951. I don't know. I I feel it's so stupid. Like, I know that there are newspapers. Like, I know comics have been around, but there was something about that that was like, whoa, it was a comic in the 50s? I don't know. It just felt weird. Well, the content, the the topic, it, like... I feel like horror comic is a more recent thing, but apparently not. Like, I think of the comics of that era being so pure. I mean, who knows? To me, comics... Ooh. (laughs) This is another glimpse into me. I was like, Garfield, (laughs) Kathy, Ack. There's this whole world I'm just not connected to. Um... But anyway, in 1953, classical composer Julia Perry wrote a one-act opera based on the story entitled The Bottle. And then the next year, she wrote a second one entitled The Cask of Amontillado. So 
I think it's safe to say she was a, I don't know what you, an Amontillado head, a Poe. A, <laughs> a Poe ho. Poe pal. <laughs> oh, Poe ho. That's, that's way better than Poe pal. <laughs> um, but then it just continues to spread. In 1960, there's a, a Brazilian adaptation was published. Uh, 1962, the anthology film Tales of Terror combined the story with other Poe short stories, notably The Black Cat. And another callback, Vincent Price was in that, mm-hmm. as well as Peter Lorre. Um, and aside from being a critical and a financial success, that film then inspired a novelization, a comic adaptation, and for some reason, a CD <laughs> featuring the musical score of the film was released in 2011. What? <laughs> so aside from the short story itself having comic adaptations, they made this film that merged several Poe stories, which was then novelized and turned into a comic itself and the album way later. Can we put that on our um, Spotify? There is some Spotify stuff in this one. Uh, so, but back to the 1960s and 65, it was adapted by Warren publishing. And in 67, another Brazilian adaptation was released. So interesting. Then in the seventies, staying on the Vincent Price train, he included a solo recitation of the story in the anthology film An evening with Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. So Vincent Price, another Poho. <laughs> oh my gosh. He's the best Poho. <laughs> um, and someone's going to, like, sue us the estate. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> um, so then in 71, the story was featured on an episode of NBC's Night Gallery, which I don't know if you know Night Gallery. It's sort of a companion contemporary to The Twilight Zone, but for supernatural stories and not science fiction. Got it. Got it. Okay. Then another comic was released in 74. Uh, the next year in 75, CBS Radio Mystery Theater did an extended adaptation, which invented new details from the original story. Um, the next year, the Alan Parsons Project released a song, mm. which I kind of enjoyed. Oh, interesting. Entitled The Cask of Amontillado. And it is on our Spotify playlist. <laughs> but the lyrics of that one, there were a couple that stood out to me, and they were... You who are rich and whose troubles are few may come around to see my point of view. What price the crown of a king on his throne when you're chained in the dark all alone? Uh. It was like a pretty good song. I enjoyed it. Because some of the songs from some of the culture are not that enjoyable. (laughs) I mean, clearly, I've already been surprised by the amount of times the story has been turned into comic adaptations. So then I was even more surprised to learn that in 1977, Marvel Comics adapted the cast of Amontillado. (laughs) And so this is my official pitch. Kirsten listeners, it's time to petition Disney and we need to get the cast of Amontillado into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh my God, so much. I don't know how. Maybe Thanos snaps just as Montresor is about to wall up the last piece. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's something fun. Oh Maybe you could just have a, I don't know, Black Widow could have some Amontillado as a little <laughs> 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 point. But for real, I was like, 
okay, well, this does not sound like the Marvel comics I know. Well, I mean, I'm thinking of From Hell, though. That was pretty successful when they turned it into a movie. Yeah, so I, I think there should be more. More Cask of Amontillado. I'd, so there's a lot more here, but I'd be interested in what a, like, 2021-style yeah. movie could be. Yeah. I mean, you have to admit so much plot because it's a short story, but, yeah, I'd really be interested. Oh, wow. So jumping back, that same year uh, that Marvel had their comic adaptation. Um, another adaptation was released uh, in Pendulum Press's Best of Poe illustrated series. So not quite a comic, but it's also been illustrated a bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, two years later, Moby Books did their own illustrated adaptation. And then in 1980, a third illustrated adaptation was released in Mexico. And then there were multiple adaptations across the 80s and 90s. Wow. So in 98, The Cask of Amontillado was made into a British film. And then a French adaptation of a... So uh, then it was adapted as a French comic in 89. So people love it. And they really love it in comic form for some reason. So wild. And then this sentence is about to sound like a Mad Lib. (laughs) But in 2003, Lou Reed included an adaptation of the extended edition of his Poe-themed album, The Raven, titled The Cask, which was performed by Willem Dafoe and Steve Buscemi. So bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) And then weirdly enough, Toby Keith used the story as inspiration for a music video of his 2006 song, A Little Too Late. (laughs) Weird. This is all over the place in terms of how it's uh, influenced pieces of culture. Um, So then in 2009, a comic version was released in Spain. In 2011, a film adaptation, a TV film adaptation was released, and it was awarded a regional Emmy. In 2013, a stage adaptation premiered. And then in 2014, there was a fury of stuff. 2014 was like Cask of Amontillado time. So Dark Dark Horse Comics did an adaptation. An Argentinian adaptation was released. The American-British-Italian film, and I'm going to need your help, Terror, T-E-R-R-O-I-R. I don't know Italian Terror. <laughs> but it premiered at the Wine County Film Festival in Sonoma County, California, to critical acclaim. The same year, Comedy Bang Bang TV show included a parody adaptation entitled Tragedy is Comedy Plus Slime. So, <laughs> real highbrow. <laughs> um, the story also sets up the plot of Christopher Moore's novel, The Serpent of Venice, which was released that same year. Then in 2015, Bethesda Game Studio released Fallout 4, which, if you're not a gamer, an open-world post-apocalyptic environment that encompasses the city of Boston for Fallout 4, so it's a franchise. And in the game, there's a mission where you have to go into the tunnels below the castle, which is the game's version of Fort Independence, where you get to the underground room and find a skeleton in the wall that's bound up like the skeleton in the story. And in the game, there's another skeleton holding a bottle of Amontillado. And if you zoom in on the bottle, it says P. Edgar. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so, so cool. Yeah, combining the short story with the real life legend that helped inspire it. And for reference, okay, be ready. <laughs> Fallout 4 generated $750 million in sales in 24 hours of its launch. What? Yes. <laughs> in one day. That uh, makes no sense at all. It received numerous accolades from gaming publications and awards events, so it was Game of the Year from the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences and Best Game at the British Academy Games Awards. Wow. So Fallout is a big deal in terms of media and culture. Yeah. (laughs) So I thought that was a really cool way the story has evolved, especially connecting it to the real-life story of Ford Independence. That's what's so interesting is how it kind of came full circle and came back. Yeah, that's so interesting. It actually makes me somewhat interested in learning more about that game. My husband is a (laughs) Fallout fan, so he may actually have it, and I could peak. That can be our bonus episode, (laughs) Kirsten Plays Fallout. (laughs) Um, So then in 2017, comic adjacent, the story was adapted for the first time into manga. Oh, wow. And then lastly... To round it all out, and maybe most importantly in 2021, the story has found its way to memes. <laughs> um, there are good ones, Thomas the Tank Engine, Star Wars, Gordon Ramsay. And I, I know, listener, <laughs> podcasts are an audio medium. And so we've put up a special Instagram post with some of my favorite memes. But that said, there was one that I felt would work because it was a tweet. <laughs> So the tweet said, PSA, being vaccinated does not mean you can invite your friend over for a cask of Amontillado while secretly planning to entomb him within your basement for revenge for a perceived slight. (laughs) I love it. But yeah, check out our Instagram for some truly good memes from this super old short story. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of wonder, like, has something even had cultural impact if there are no memes about it? Like, that's something of a a litmus test, I I feel, like, for modern impact. Uh, Yeah, that's our new dissertation. (laughs) But that said, I mean, who would have ever guessed that this duel... Yeah. I, I mean, not to call it simple, but, like, just... A run-of-a-mill duel. Yeah. Which then got its own mythos in the local area that Edgar Allan Poe just so happened to sneak into the army under a fake name. Yeah. <laughs> fake age to avoid his creditors. Here's this, like, cool, spooky story of what happened. Writes this story just way back in the 1800s, and now it's memes and Fallout 4 plot point and everyone's English lit class. Like, yeah, well, and it spread across the globe. Mm hmm. It's Marvel comics. Like, I know Brazil, Spain, France. Like, it's incredible, and I don't really have a sense of if Poe is that well-known or that popular in other countries, my sense is he's, there's something very American about his 
fame, but I could be wrong. Well, and yeah, I think listeners, we're, or at least I'm a broken record about this, but like, <laughs> this is why we do this podcast. Yeah. A crime occurs, a murder in the form of a duel. And then all of this, it's touched our lives and, and you would never know it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. I love it. And I, I think also the other thing that we harp on all the time, which is like the fascination with crime is not new. And I think that we're kind of like the spiritual descendants of Poe in that he took this kind of, like you said, a story of a simple crime that happened not infrequently back then. And he turned it into this psychological study, you know, and created this scenario. And I think that's what's so gripping about the story is that the language is pretty, like, stripped down for that time. It's not flowery, but you really feel like you're inside the mind of this murderer and mm-hmm. understanding the nuance. And ugh, even, like, though you're not in his head, like, feeling the feelings of the victim. And, yeah, it's just, I think the fascination has always been there. You know, it's just taken all these different forms based on the media of the time. But so fascinating. Well, listener, we so hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And now you've got so much trivia for whenever you're at another party. You need to throw something out. Totally. And for this one, I really want to encourage people to go. I'm so proud always of our of our sources in our episode notes because that's the stuff that we found along the way. And there's no way that we could include everything that we found and keep it to even close to an hour. But I just found cool maps of Boston and so many cool things. So go check out those links if you're at all interested in this stuff because there's a lot of really cool tangents that you could go on. So definitely check out our website, look at the memes on our Instagram, and listen to the song on our Spotify playlist. And as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. 100%. Thanks for listening to Most Vowel. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic, or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini-episode, visit our website at mostvowelpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production.